Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone. Now, a crisis of the imagination, or perhaps a production, and the supposed death of the novel has been announced many times over centuries now, but should we really despair? Or is this another time when fiction is more urgently needed than ever? Are those and can those needs be met by the writers and the systems that support them? As readers, do we read into hope or despair? Hello and welcome to this session on the state of the art here at the Sydney Writers' Festival, where I'd like to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal land and to pay my respects to elders past and present, and to think, of course, about the original storytellers of this place. I'm Kate Evans from ABC Radio National's podcast and broadcast program, The Bookshelf. And I'm delighted to be here with a collection of writers whose work, to be honest, thrills me with its intelligence, creativity and promise. But how does it feel from the inside? Let's find out, but first, the guests. Colson Whitehead, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer whose novels include The Underground Railroad, Nickel Boys and Harlem Shuffle, and whose sequel, Crook Manifesto, will be published very soon. <laughs> Eleanor Catton, Booker Prize-winning writer whose novels are The Luminaries and Burnham Wood, and she's also a screenwriter. Richard Flanagan, Man Booker Prize-winning writer whose novels include The Narrow Road to the Deep North, Gould's Book of Fish and The Living Sea of Waking Dreams, and his next book, Question 7, will be published at the end of this year. Tracy Lien is a debut author determinedly not paying attention to that long list of awards and accolades, and her novel is All That's Left Unsaid. Now, I'm imagining three stages to this conversation. How you each understand the state of your own writing art, where you are now, and I'm going to ask that from each of you. And then we're going to move on to the challenges to fiction, be they political, technological, economic, or one of reception and reading, or something else entirely. I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about that. And then I'm aiming to keep asking you, well, about the, your sense of the future and possibilities of fiction as an art. And as we move between the three of you, I'm imagining we're going to end up with something like a David Mitchell hybrid novel that skips between forms and perspectives and times rather than any sort of cohesive little tome. But let's start with you, Colson. I mean, you've written speculative fiction, tough alternative history in the Underground Railroad, historical fiction with the Nickel Boys, and now what could be understood as a series of heist novels. So how do you understand the state of your own writing as you're working now? Um, well, first I want to you know, thank everybody for coming and uh, say I'm very excited to be with such cool people and I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation. For me, I'm still figuring it out. Um, I do switch genres a lot. And um, part of that is keeping it fresh for me. Um, I like the challenge of, say, writing a zombie novel, which I did. I, was, I became a writer because I loved horror and science fiction as a kid. 
and, um, and adored horror movies. And so how can I take this form that I love and, and do it right and find my own way into, into the genre? Um, I think as a kid, I was very pop culture oriented and loved David Bowie and Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick would do his war movie, his sci-fi movie, his horror movie, um, and switch it up. Uh, David Bowie in his 70s and early 80s run would have a different persona for every record. Uh, Ziggy Stardust, The Thin White Duke. So it seemed to make sense that if you do something once, why do it again? Which is odd because I'm doing a trilogy, so I'm actually writing a sequel and another sequel. But the challenge of doing a, a trilogy is, is really thrilling, and, so, and, I'm, and I'm figuring it out. Um, how do I follow this one character in the 60s and 70s and 80s? Uh, he's 30, he's 40, he's in his mid-50s. Um, how do I mirror that with the life of the city? New York City is also changing. So um, I don't know how to do it. I've never done a trilogy before. Never followed a character, character like this. And so it's, it's thrilling, but also really depressing because there's no one I can really ask for help. And, but that's, I guess that's the usual thing. Thank you. And Eleanor Catton, I mean, Burnham Wood, your latest novel, it's funny, it's scathing, and it manages to combine environmental activism with a bonkers thrillers plot involving a millionaire. And you also write for the screen. What would you say about the state of your own writing? I think actually my experience as a screenwriter has really um, returned me to the basics in a way, in, in terms of how I approach fiction. Um, I, I, w I was always one of those people, I'd, I'd, I never understood the supposedly wonderful piece of advice that young writers are always given, which is that a story has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. That just seemed to me the most kind of appallingly kind of opaque and obvious piece, piece of advice. I, I, I never understood it until I started working as a screenwriter. And then I realised that, um, you know, I'd, I'd always been thinking about this piece of advice and thinking, you know, what, why? Why can't you have a beginning and an end? Like, why do you need a, the middle? Or why can't you just end with the middle? Or why can't you begin with the middle? I didn't understand it. Um, but as a screenwriter, I started to realise that paying attention to the transitions, the moment that takes you from the beginning to the middle, from the first act to the second, and from the second act to the third, um, rather than to the blocks of action, suddenly this piece of advice really clicked for me and it was kind of like a light bulb went off over my head. And I was thinking a lot at the time, um, this was while I was working on Burnham Wood actually, I was thinking a lot of, uh, at the time about dramatic irony and the necessity when you're ironising something, not just to reverse it once, but re to reverse it a second time. So to, to go through what, what a screenwriter would call the the turning point and then the crisis point, these kind of two transitions. Um, and, and that just got me really excited about, about I, I, I suppose, the kind of the basics of action, that, that, that something needs to be re reversed once and then reversed, reversed again. So, I, yeah, I, I suppose my head, my head is very much filled with this, this very basic question as I kind of move forward. Oh, I think there's nothing basic about it as we, as we read into your work. Now, Richard Flanagan, I mean, memory, grief, history, the environment and our relationship to it, storytelling, of course, disappearing body parts. How do you make sense to, of your relationship to the art of fiction? Uh, well, I, well, I don't. And, uh, and I, I'd worry if I ever did. I, I mean... When I started out writing, I knew a lot about it, but now I've reached the stage where I realise I know absolutely nothing at all. 
But I, I, I was interested in what Eleanor was saying. I, it reminded me of that line in Flann O'Brien's That Swim Two Birds, where the, the characters skive out of the novel and go to the pub occasionally. And, um, <laughs> and one of them says, uh, uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end is something I've never agreed with in a novel and starts a whole new beginning for the novel. And um, I've always loved that sort of anarchic tradition. And um, Colson's point, uh, I, I realise I share with Colson an admiration for those artists that are about change. Um, there's that great Miles Davis line that if it ain't about change, it ain't jazz. And uh, I've always wanted to, after I finish each book, smash the model and um, because I've learnt how to do it in that particular style and voice and start again because I, I think what begins as a, a style, a technique, a, a form of story can be, and, and a way of expressing a, a certain truths can become stale and, uh, and moribund and at that point um, you're cheating yourself and you're actually lying to your reader and so I, I always like to find a, a form that I don't feel overly confident in, but it forces me to think through every sentence and what it is I'm trying to say in a new form, in a new way. Um, and, and so the, the book I'm working on at the moment is um, partly fiction, partly, uh, uh, partly memoir, but it, uh, I was, I realised I came from a, a peculiar and strange place, which was this Island, which was haunted by its memory of a, a genocide and, the, and a, the slave society that was convictism. And both things I realised were very formative when I grew up, even though there was a huge century-old silence that pervaded um, the whole society there. And it was a way of trying to write about that in, in, in a way that was new for me and express some truths that I hadn't fully understood about it. Um, and uh, so at the moment I'm harried trying to finish that. My, my wonderful publisher, Nikki Christ, is in the audience tonight and um, she's got the ruler out on my knuckles to finish the edit, <laughs> so I, I, I have to finish them soon. You're all giving us different ways of thinking about writing and your relationship to it, so I'm hoping that we can sort of go back and see how that conversation, those differences and similarities work between each of you as well. But Tracy Lien your debut novel, All That's Left Unsaid, it takes us to Sydney's Cabramatta in the 1990s. You were a child then, but you write your way into the mythology as well as the reality of that place. And was this in some way the novel that you, you had to write? I mean, I'm wondering how you understand this novel at, in terms of your writing career, you know, at this stage of your writing life. Right, so I'll start off by saying that I'm definitely not panicking about sharing the stage with these fellow authors. Uh, I'm keeping my cool. Um, but to answer your question, so I, I write to understand my fixations, right? And so I'll give you an example. Um, so All That's Left Unsaid is a murder mystery set in Cabramatta in the 90s. And I started working on it when I was getting my master's degree in creative writing. And as with those courses, you write short stories, you bring them in, your classmates give you feedback, uh, and lather, rinse, repeat. And at the end of the semester, a classmate of mine asked me, oh, are you writing a linked short story collection? And I said, no, I don't think so. What makes you say that? 
And they said, well, every story you've submitted is told from the point of view of these young Asian girls who live in Cabramatta in the 90s. <laughs> they seem pretty related. And I was like, oh, it had not occurred to me that I was doing that, but I was clearly circling something. Like, I was fixated with something. And the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that what I really wanted to get at was for the reader to understand how it feels. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I want people to know how it feels to have grown up Asian in Australia in the 90s. And what did I mean by that? Well, I wanted people to understand conditional citizenship, how you could grow up being told from a very young age that you're as Aussie as they come, you belong, you'll get a fair go, only to realize that it doesn't necessarily apply to you or to people who look like you. Um, and so in, in writing this story, it was a way for me to sort of understand what that looks like. Um, and then to like craft a story that would hopefully like package those feelings in a way that a reader could actually connect to. Um, and then in terms of like jumping from fixation to fixation, I think the reason why I was thinking about that at the time was because I was studying in Kansas and the people there are absolutely lovely. Midwestern hospitality is a real thing. But I would often walk into a classroom and be the only non-white person. I'd walk into a restaurant and often be the only non-white person. And it reminded me of what it was like in certain Australian settings as well. So it, was, it triggered certain memories and certain feelings that were sort of just percolating in the background. And it was through writing that I was able to dredge up and understand those feelings. That, that idea of the, the story that you have to tell, that first novel that you, that you have to write, was that an issue for you too, Richard? I really can't remember, to be frank. I, I, I um, you know, I, I should, I guess. Um, but I, I, I do remember the book came out. Well, I've told this story before, but I, I went to America. It was published there much later. Some other books came out and went there and I was interviewed by someone who knew a lot about the book and told me what it was about, which was a mercy. And then I passed off his answers, his questions, <laughs> as my answers everywhere else, and that seemed to work. <laughs> really what I realised writing the first novel is that if you succeed in it, it escapes all your ambitions and aspirations and it becomes something else entirely. And um, novels fail to the extent they realise the ambitions you have for them at the beginning. It is to the extent they escape um, your original intentions, that they succeed and have something of worth for the reader. And um, hopefully that's what happened with my first novel. I think I had some very dull ideas at the beginning. <laughs> um, I might just go straight to Colson before coming back to you, Eleanor. Um, just because, Colson, you've written across so many different genres. Um, and so reflecting on Tracy's comment about that first novel, the one that you had to write, is there a way of looking at your own writing career in those terms? Was there a story that you had to write? And was it that first novel? Uh, I, I had to write the first novel because it's bad. And then if you write a bad novel, the next one will probably just be better. So um, it was about a... Uh, I'm not sure if the show Different Strokes made it here, the Gary Coleman. So, yeah, a little black boy always being adopted by white people on TV shows and film. And so it, I was like a TV critic, and so it was about black imagery and pop culture, and this little child actor grows up and has misadventures. Um, and it was terrible, and I got rejected by 25 you know, different publishers. Um, and I think I became a writer because of that failure, and I realized there was nothing else I could do. So um, 
I had to, had to write it in order to commit to the terrible lifestyle. And then you write a bad novel and maybe the next one is a little bit better. Um, I feel emotionally connected you know, to certain books or I look back and, and say, oh, that's a, a breakthrough where I figured out character. Or this, is a, a, this novel is a breakthrough where I sort of got rid of my pinch and fixation and started to you know, stake my own claim on my own material. Or I figured out how to do dialogue in a, in a proper way. So, um, you know, I think hopefully you get better, you know, book by book. And so you have to write them all in order to get better. The same way that if you're a plumber or a heart surgeon, you get better. Like if you've been operating on people for 25 years, hopefully you're killing fewer people <laughs> after 25 years than you were at the beginning. So Eleanor Catton, how does that work in terms of your own um, killing or not killing your characters, writing or not writing the, the story that you were driven to write in terms of the luminaries? The luminaries, yeah. I mean, I, I really identify with what what's being said. This kind of the sense of um, kind of not knowing what you've got really at the beginning of the project. And in, in my case, actually, with all my books, there was there was kind of this sense of dread and terror that I might not be able to do it. But that I found that a very creative kind of dread. Um, and you know, I, I I knew what I wanted to achieve. I kind of knew what 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 I wanted the book to be, but I didn't really know how I was going to go about it. And so that, that relationship with, with the why and the how I find very fascinating. I often, I often know the why, but I don't know the how. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a very peculiar experience with the luminaries, um, which was that right after I finished it, I was, I was, the, the book has quite a complicated mathematical structure where each, each um, part is half the length of the part that goes before and the, the plot is kind of modelled on, on real-life star charts um, that I, I was, I'd, I'd kind of generated using a computer programme. And so I'd set myself all these kind of absurd um, obstacles and kind of challenges in, in the writing of the book. And I was really afraid while I was writing it, that I would, I would die before the book was finished and then it wouldn't, it, it kind of, it would be a failure. And um, I woke up the morning after I sent it off to my, my editor and I just, I felt immortal. I, I felt, I felt entirely weightless. I just floated downstairs. I just, I'd, I've never had this experience before in my life. I, I felt that I could die and it wouldn't matter. And I, I was like a, a saintly feeling. And it lasted for about two weeks. And it was the <laughs> best two weeks of my life. And when I was writing Burnham Wood, I was, I was just rubbing my hands. I was thinking, oh, God, I'm so looking forward to the immortal feeling because that was just such a high. And I finished Burnham Wood and I just waited for it to come. But it's, 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 never, it's never come. I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to get it again. <laughs> But as a, you know, as a, as a story of the the joy of creativity and that pure joy is that's just lovely. So as we're here with Immortals at the Sydney Writers Festival, <laughs> let's see what happens if we turn well, I guess, down to earth a bit. If we're talking about the state of the art of fiction, part of that is to think about um, whether there's a crisis in fiction. And what we're told at the moment, what's being posited as a crisis in the making of fiction in 2020-2023 is the role of artificial intelligence. But Tracy, is it or must it be a killer of the imagination? So I, I use ChatGPT as a research buddy. Um, I don't use it to write because writing is the fun part, so why would I outsource that? But um, 
you know, like there's the, the question that's often posed is, will AI one day be able to write a, like a literary masterpiece? Can it write something that is that we can't, uh, you know, that we might mistake for being written uh, by a human? And having interacted with technology like GPT-4, the answer is like, yes, I think we're already there. And I think with certain uh, prompt engineering, you could probably ask something like a GPT-4 to write a novel that, say, uses the structure of Richard Flanagan's The Narrow Road to the Deep North in the voice of Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys with the themes of Eleanor Catton's Burnham Wood. And it could probably pull off some sort of bizarre Frankenstein-y thing. But what I've been, the question that I often ask is, do people want that? Not necessarily that, that novel in particular, <laughs> but, but for example, if you were to listen to a song and you loved it and you realized that it was generated by AI, would it bother you? If you read something and you were moved by it, but then you learned that it was written by AI, would it bother you? So the way these AIs work is... Um, it's through a process of diffusion. When you ask GPT for a question, it uses statistical probability to put one word behind the next. It is not conscious. It doesn't feel. The AI doesn't have beliefs or a point of view. And when I think of why so many of us read, I think there's a reciprocal element to it where you want to be interacting with another human's imagination. You want to be reading something from someone who exists in the world with you. And so in, in, that, in that way, I don't see it as that significant a threat to perhaps like the writing of literary fiction, because I'm not sure that that's what readers want necessarily. And I'll confess, I can't quite get my head around how any of it works. So I'll be taking your word on part of it. But Richard, whether it's artificial intelligence or something else, what do you think are the forces working against us as we talk about the state of the art of writing? I, you know, I, it, it's wearisome, these sort of things, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I, I don't care, you know? <laughs> I just, just, is it all right to say that? I don't care. I like books, you know? I like reading books. And, I, you know, I had a look on ChatGPT and it, it produces things that sound like the New York Times, which is, which is pretty tedious, you know? And, um, that, and I, I think what novels do at their best is ask questions. What ChatGPT does and what artificial intelligence does is give you bad answers. And sometimes it will straight up lie to you. So these things, they hallucinate and, and we don't know why. I'd, I'd also say all these discussions are permeated by the fallacy of progress. The, the history of the novel is not a history of progress. It's a history of change. And, but, but, you know, I, you go back to things like Tristram Shandy or Cervantes, um, they're still extraordinary. I was reading James Baldwin yesterday and I cannot imagine any machine being able to replicate the utter uniqueness and vivacity and power of that voice. Um, it's because they continue to ask questions um, that are unique. So I, I just, I, I think, and, and the, the idea of progress, again, even in A Writer's Own Life, the book A Writer, a writer Writes at um, Tracy's Age is not the book Tracy will write when she's 40 or when she's 50. Um, 
that are they better books or worse books? They're just different. I can't write the book I wrote at 30. Hopefully, you know, I can write a book that, you know, um, reflects who I am now. But there is no progress in these things. There simply is a, a moment, a cracked diary of a soul for the time um, that it's being penned. And that's a novel, a series of questions reflecting that cracked diary of the soul. And I, I, I just think uh, artificial intelligence is going to do many, many things. Um, but there's always something else. There, there, was, there, was, there were newspapers, you know, they talked about newspapers destroying the novel. Back in the 1830s, they talked about radio, TV, on and on, CD-ROMs, remember them? They were going to destroy... I did a panel where we talked about how CD-ROMs are going to destroy the novel. And I, I said I wasn't that interested in CD-ROMs and, you know, um, I was laughed off the stage. What an idiot, you know. Progress, it's a fallacy. Well, and we were told that the woman reader, the woman reader would destroy the novel as well, and I don't think she has. But, Eleanor, I'm curious, though, about the, um, the pressures that might work against a writer. And I'm curious about the role of expectations and the pressures placed on a writer, which, and I guess I'm asking you because you were labelled for a long time always as the youngest winner of the Booker Prize. And I wondered what that did to your writing self. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely felt those expectations. Um, I, I, don't mind, I don't mind great expectations, actually. I, I, I find it... Uh, um, you know, to have have a little bit of, of, of fear behind you, I think, is it can can be a very creative space. Um, I, I was very lucky in that my I'm, I'm published in the UK by Granta, um, who are kind of my primary publishers. And as an independent publisher, they didn't try and push me into a kind of commodified direction. They didn't try and um, get get me to repeat what I'd done before. They they always knew that I was going to kind of follow my own nose. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to that. Um, I, I, I did experience um, after, I mean, this might be similar with you, I, I experienced this kind of great, um, I don't know, this, is it, the Booker Prize is such a turning point in, your, in, in terms of your kind of fortunes as a writer. And you go from, in my case at least, you go from being a, a liability <laughs> to your publisher, as, as every debut writer is, um, <laughs> to becoming an asset to, to them. So you, you become the writer who then can finance the, the, the um, taking on of many, many other different writers by that publishing house. And when that happened, I became quite worried. Um, I talked to my editor and I said, I, I really want you to tell me if I write something and it isn't any good because I, I realised that there's now, there could be a financial imperative for you to publish it even if you know it's not any good because it'll find readers, just not, not because of me, but because of, the, the kind of the name of the prize, really. Um, and so she promised, she promised to do that. And, you know, we parted as friends, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So should we, so Colson, should we not then be talking about a crisis in fiction? I mean, do you think there is a crisis in the writing or the reception of fiction? And if so, I guess I'm wondering what shapes it, shape it might take. Sure, I mean, I don't think all technology or, or progress is bad. Um, uh... I, for, for writing, I, you know, if you look at, say, Edgar Allan Poe, um, alcoholic, drank himself to death. If he'd had Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, he could have written like another, for another 20, you know, 20 or 30 years. Uh, Nietzsche, driven mad by syphilis. Uh, penicillin could have uh, really 
move things around for him. He could be doing podcasts or um, little philosophical pamphlets, stuff like that. So, um, so I think, you know, in some ways we have a lot of great stuff now that makes it easier to be a writer or even a human being. Um, I've read some chat GPT stuff and, and definitely AI can do uh, technical writing. It can do like press releases. Whenever I see fiction it's written, it's like really terrible. And we don't need, you know, it's like, congratulations, you invented mediocre creative writing students. You know, we already have enough of those. We don't need <laughs> someone to invent more. Uh, so, I'm in a, you know, and then when I say that, people are like, oh, but 10 years from now, it'll be really good and really put you out of business, which is kind of okay, you know. Um, right now, I'm, I'm more worried about not getting shot on the way to the grocery store. I live in America. There's a lot of guns around. So... I have more con concrete fears than a crisis in, in fiction. I mean, the crises are, are different than... I mean, technology never impacts writing in the way people think. You know, the thing that's really impacted writers is um, digital retailing in the form of Amazon. That has driven... Um, it's led to a consolidation of publishing that's been immensely damaging for writers, and it's driven writers' incomes down. It's concentrated sales... In, in a handful of bestsellers, which makes it much harder for uh, the more interesting writers. That's all driven by technology, but it's not the sort of spectacular technology you read about every day. It's, it's uh, quite profound and very sophisticated technology. But, so I think technology does impact, but never in the ways that um, uh, we talk about on, on panels like this. Well, I expected that actually you might all be raising things like uh, the fact that there are fewer uh, reviews. There are certainly fewer literary reviews and reviewers around now. Crises in university, funding, arts bodies, all of these things. I mean, do you feel as writers that these things make it harder to write? I mean, how hard is it for you to survive as a as a writer now, Tracy? I mean, you were a um, you were a journalist um, until recently, I think. Yeah, so I was previously a journalist for the LA Times and I was really fortunate that the stars aligned for me that I sold my novel the same week I finished my master's degree. But if that hadn't happened, then I'm not really sure where things would be now. And so I do think that, you know, as funding gets cut for the arts, then that, that, mean, that results in fewer opportunities for people. Absolutely. Um, I mean, are you all able to actually live as writers or is it a case of having to do hybrid bits of writing between bits of anything else that comes along? Colson, can you live as a writer? Uh, I am now. You know, I've been a freelancer for most of my life and I still feel like everything is very precarious. Um, you know, like Eleanor, I have a publisher who's loved me and I've been with the same one for 20 years, which means I've been, I've been up and I've been down and I've been up and I've been down and... Uh, I started off with my first two books, I got a lot of critical attention, and I like, got a bigger advance, and then nothing really sold, and then my advances would go down. My beloved publisher would look at the numbers and say, we love you, but we're going to you know, dial it down a little bit for a couple of books and see what happens. And, and because I, I can step back and see that rising in you know, uh, that sort of process, I know that 10 years from now, uh, it'll be very different. And... Uh, you have to always have that hustle between finding, supporting your art and paying the rent and, and fixing your kids' teeth and putting food on the table. 
Um, so that never goes away. Um, I think the scale of things. Uh, when I was a single journalist, I was worried about beer money and cigarette money, and now I actually have dependents and uh, the worries are bigger, and uh, I was doing more teaching before, say, Underground Railroad. Um, so that struggle is always there, and just because things are going well now doesn't mean they will be five years and ten years from now. Look, in a way, I think it's more interesting to talk about the, the pleasures and the creativity and the imaginative side of writing than to talk about all of the things that might work against your writing. So if I could just stay with you for a minute, Colson, I'm interested that in your career you've written into so many different genres and I'm wondering why. I mean, is it that you're always searching for a different form or you like to experiment? I mean, why do you move between speculative fiction, historical fiction, alternate history? Well, like everyone else, I just like these different things. You know, I like uh, solid works of realism. I like fantasy. I like... Uh, crime movies, I like crime novels. And I think what's cool about this job is that you can do whatever you want. Uh, there's no expectation. I'm not like uh, in the historical novelist club, but I'll get kicked out if I write um, a historical novel with a fantastic element. And so I, I just come to it as a fan of these different kinds of stories. And I like the challenge of, of writing a zombie novel that echoes George Romero's great Living Dead trilogy, which I grew up on and, and adore. So it's really um, a love for these different kinds of, kinds of stories and, and, and digging the challenge of, of, of figuring out what I want to keep or reject from these different traditions. Um, Richard, as I think I, I mentioned earlier, your next work is a hybrid work of nonfiction and fiction, and I think you've included some memoir in that as well. What is the, the, the pleasure of mixing forms as a writer? Um, just before that, I, just about the, the money. As they say, the most, <laughs> the most beautiful phrase in English literature is the, the checks in the mail. And, uh, but the, 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 the good, the, the extraordinary, I mean, I think literature's never been much of a paying proposition, but there was a brief period after the war and particularly maybe the 70s through to the 90s where there was some money for literary writers. No, I think a lot of the... Um, it's been a quite extraordinary outpouring following Martin Amos's death, but you do sense in it a nostalgia for a time when writers could command such money and such attention. But really, um, that's a, an unusual moment in the history of letters, mostly... Most writers don't make much money. I think Henry James never sold more than 10,000 copies. You know, um, uh, you, know you, you can go on and on about all the writers that failed to make money. But that's what makes it um, a subversive medium. It doesn't need much money either. I mean, I think writers should get paid a lot more and be paid a lot better. But nevertheless, unlike um, film or TV, um, it, it, all that stands between... Um, creating um, a great work of art is your own lack of talent. It doesn't need money. And that's why it's always been the most democratic form and the most subversive form. And, um, and that's the great and extraordinary promise, I think, of um, novels and literature. 
And Bernadine Evaristo was saying something very like that here at the Sydney Writers' Festival the other night. And she's somebody who's worked in radical theatre, in community organisations, using all sorts of different types of writing and has done it in between other bits and pieces as she can. And it's only been in about the last three years that she could in any way survive on her writing. And she also teaches at a university now as well. I'm sorry, I think I cut you off when you might have been answering my question about hybrid films. I was actually trying films. to avoid it. But, oh, OK. Uh, we yeah, can, yeah, but, you can avoid um, it if you like. You know, that's, <laughs> I can't even remember. what It was about the new book. The new book. We can just wait. I, you can I read your new book in I, November. Yeah, read it. I'll, I'll finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do the blurb a few months ago and the... the uh, my publisher, Nikki Christa, who's here for 25 years, she said, that's wonderful. Can you just write a book as good as that? Yeah. So I'm hoping to deliver on, um, on that threat and, uh, and um, there you go. And then we'll be able to talk about it then. Yeah. Okay, so maybe the challenge of the state of the art is meeting the deadline. Um, Eleanor, you also work um, as a screenwriter and so working across those different forms, working with fiction and working with, well, is, it, is screenwriting a visual form? Is it a collaborative form? I mean, how do you understand the relationship between writing fiction and working as a screenwriter? Well, I mean, the, the um, financial uh, part of that is, is, is one of the reasons to move to screenwriting. <laughs> um, and I think that if, if I hadn't been working as a screenwriter, I, I would have had to be much swifter with my next book than I have been. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it is. It, it, it's a funny thing to to work on a, a screenplay because ultimately your your work is going to get rewritten twice over. Um, first of all, in the shoot by the director and the actors, and the kind of the contingent realities of of, of whatever needs to happen on the day, and then again it gets re rewritten in in post production in the edit, um, where things can find kind of new resonances with one another. Um, whole scenes can be cut, uh, uh, you know, um, whole lines of dialogue. You can, you can realise in post-production, actually, this actor nailed that with, with a single look or a single blink. You know, you, you, you kind of don't need to... They, they don't need to speak because they've, they've spoken already in their body language. Um, so I, I find it a very, very fertile kind of place to be... Um, but it can also be very frustrating because it, your, your, your work is not necessarily reaching uh, the audiences at the end of the line. It, it, it might end up getting um, changed around or, <laughs> or, 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 or cut or, you know, or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it's an interesting companion to, to writing novels, but I think that there is, you know, I, I'm really responding to what everyone's saying about the this kind of, this, this freedom, this kind of liberty in the, in the most political sense that you have as, as, a, um, as a writer of fiction, that there, there is something inherently subversive about that. There's, there's nothing stopping you, and there's, there, there are no rules, there's no budget, there's no, there's no schedule, there's, no, uh, there's kind of nobody in your way. And it, there's, there's something about that that I think will never not be powerful. You know, I've, I, I, I kind of, I, I don't believe the novel is killable. I, I actually don't think that it's, I'd, yeah, I, I, I think it's a form that so long as there are human beings, we, we, we will be so interested in what it is like to live in somebody else's body and live in their mind. And, and the novel is the only art form that can really 
do that. It can, it can situate us in time and in space, but inside another person. Um, on, on screen, that doesn't really happen in the same way. You, you remain yourself when you watch when you watch something on, on, on screen, you, you, you're still sitting on your couch and you're, you're looking at the actors. You're not becoming the characters as you do when you read a novel. Yes, which says so much about the, the dynamic relationship between the writers that you are and the readers that the rest of us are. Tracy, in a way, we're using you to embody the future of this art no because you are a debut novelist, because you are at the beginning of your your career. And so following on from Eleanor's, you know, optimism about both the the state of and the need for fiction, I mean, I guess one question is just what next for you as a writer? Right. Well, I remember hearing several authors say something to the effect of, you know, in order to write, you need a healthy amount of delusion and humility. You need to be delusional enough to believe that whatever you're fixated on is something that other people are interested in, but you also need the humility to accept that maybe people won't care or maybe you won't be able to pull it off. And for me, I just continue to be delusional enough and that is what motivates me to keep going like I'm delusional enough to believe that this thing I'm fixated on whatever it is might be something that resonates with the reader Um, and and that's what compels me to keep going. Well good on that delusion and long may it last so I will start by asking a question from Luca from the Eleanor Library on the Gold Coast who says, well, Florida under uh, DeSantis is looking to ban authors like Toni Morrison. Um, Does the panel think that this could ever happen in Australia? I think it could happen anywhere at any time. You know, I don't think we're ever safe from these kinds of... You know, I I think I totally agree with what you were saying before about progress. I think that there can be this complacency that we... We, we can feel as though we've solved some of the, the, the world's problems and then we can all relax. But these things need to be made to matter with every new generation. You know, we're, we're always just one, one, one election away from, you know, a, a, a very, very dark situation, I think. We do keep getting these stories, um, Colson, of um, banning and censorship in America. I mean, that and gun stories are probably the, the biggest ones that we see here. Is it something as a writer that you are worried about in America? Like, is it how much does it shape the conversation between writers? Um, we're usually talking about um, allergies and back pain and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, hasn't really hasn't really come up. I mean, um, we. Definitely America goes through these conservative movements every, you know, 20, 30 years. There's this ebb and flow uh, where the right uh, rises and we're banning things and we're talking about PC and then um, critical race theory. All the, you know, the terms change, but the, the fight remains the same. Um, I have no choice but to keep writing whether or not things are being banned or not. So I just do that. I have no idea what the solution is except um, uh, get more people to vote. Uh, these people out. Um, DeSantis is sort of famous for, there's an anecdote about he was eating pudding with his fingers, like he was on a, he was out, out at a function, there's no like fork or, or spoon, so he was eating pudding with his fingers. And we're going to be putting up with him for a little <laughs> while until he's voted out. You practiced that one, haven't you? Now we have a question here. 
where was that space where you just went, okay, I'm going to take a leap from this life that is sustaining me, perhaps, to this space where, no, you're not being paid? Well, you know, I made, I can only speak from my own experience, but I decided very young I was going to be a writer. I lived in poverty. I mean, it was a choice. That's it, you know, and there was no plan B, you know, that was it. I, I would write and whatever came in, came in. And um, it, it, I think that there's no other way to be a writer, you know, there just isn't. And particularly in a country like this where there is no support for writers, um, you just, uh, you either, you choose it and you, you can't complain about the knocks that come your way. It's a, it's a hard choice and you just have to make it work as best you can. Um, that's not to justify um, the way it is, but that's the only way you can be a writer. This is specific for you, Richard. Um, in The Narrow Road to the Deep North, you say a good book leaves you wanting to reread the book. A great book compels you to reread your own soul. What's been that book for you? You know, I, I think the, the writer I keep returning to is Chekhov um, because he's mysterious to me. And most, not most writers, but a lot of writers, you, you, you can look at them and you can see the nuts and bolts and you can see how the, the machinery works to achieve an effect. But, you know, sometimes I, I actually shake Chekhov, the book of Chekhov stories I'm reading, so hoping something might fall out and explain how he's achieved these effects and they're so beautiful and he, he creates these beautiful moments, um, particularly often with women, where there is an external life. It is, as Eleanor was talking about, there's an external life, there's a private life, but then beyond that there is a secret life which they don't understand and they don't even understand the contradiction they don't understand the contradiction between their public acts and their private thoughts, but they don't even understand why they have the particular private thoughts they have. And it is in that mystery, somehow, that the greatness of those stories, um, to me, um, make me feel at once not alone and also uh, just extraordinarily grateful that there was someone there who seemed to understand us all. So for he is the one for me. And, and if you haven't read Chekhov, go and buy a book of his stories, get them secondhand bookshops, and it doesn't matter what translation, they still all read beautifully. And I think you will discover something of your own soul that was unknown to you in just five or six pages. And thank you for the reminder of the, you know, the, the essential connection between writing and reading, reading and rereading. Um, now, here's a question that um, has come from Peter in Tasmania, which I think any or all of you might like to answer. What are the secrets to maintaining creativity for the long term? Oh, I think just, just reading, really. I, I, I believe that the writing life is about 90% reading <laughs> and kind of examining yourself when you read, you know, figuring out why something annoyed you or why, why something made this light bulb go off and over your head or why, you know, why something moved you or why, why you felt disappointed. Um, you know, I, 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 always felt, I, I don't teach creative writing anymore, but I always found it was very easy as a creative writing teacher to figure out who were the good students in the class because you just, they, somebody would say, I want to be a writer, and you'd say, great, what, what do you like to read? And the people who couldn't answer that question were always rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Here at the Sydney Writers' Festival, I'm Kate Evans, and we've been contemplating the state of fiction with novelists Colson Whitehead, Eleanor Catton, Richard Flanagan, and Tracy Lien. Please do thank them. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel. <laughs>